What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. everybody to burn it all down the feminist sports podcast that we hope by this time you both want and need i'm lindsey gibbs sports reporter at think progress i'll be steering the proverbial bus today joining me is julie de sports reporter and radio host extraordinaire from chicago brenda elsie associate professor of history at hofstra in new york and jessica luther freelance sports writer in austin texas we have a incredibly exciting show for you all today we're going to start it off well by talking about something not super exciting, which is the Hamilton Tiger Cats and Art Bryles. But then we're going to pivot to the U.S. Open. And then our friend Jessica Luther sat down with the incomparable Jamel Hill. So we will bring you that interview. And finally, we'll have the burn pile and the badass woman of the week, as always. A lot to get to today, friends. So shall we jump right into it? Brenda, what's been happening in Canada? Well, no sooner had we discussed the problems with sexual assault and coaches' power on last week's show than the former coach of Baylor football, Art Bryles, who had been fired last year for his failure to respond to a shocking number of sexual assaults committed by dozens of his players, received a job offer from the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the Canadian Football League to join the coaching staff as the assistant head coach. In their announcement, the team made no reference to Bryles' dismissal from Baylor last year, nothing about the reasons why that occurred. But sometimes it snows in April, and social media is good for something, because 12 hours later, the team rescinded the offer. Our resident Baylor expert, Jessica, was not surprised by Bryles' hiring. Jess, do you think Bryles will resurface? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, okay. I think it's more complicated now. There was a moment sometime in the last year where Houston, when they were looking for a new coach because their coach had jumped to Texas, he used to coach at Houston. He was beloved down there, Art Bryles was. They passed him over. And I thought, okay, that's a a sign. I mean, they had to publicly say they were not interested in him. And I thought, okay, this is a good sign that he probably won't coach college ball, at least for a long time. So, I, But I wasn't surprised to see him on the professional level, and I guess it's still possible, but the fact that he couldn't get an assistant position in the Canadian Football League makes it seem like he's, you know, he's a pretty toxic asset at this point for teams. The whole thing was, I, oh, we have an explicit rating on this. The whole thing was a clusterfuck up in Hamilton. <laughs> I mean, it was really gross to watch how the team responded like the you know Brenda mentioned that they didn't say anything when they actually did the press release and then when the CEO went out and did his defensive interview that he did he said this it was all so centered on the team and on Bryles and they kept telling us and I'd love to hear your guys thoughts on this they kept saying he deserved a second chance and I've been thinking a lot about what it means and why we think people just deserve one and they never told us why he would deserve one outside of a very passive statement about Bryles being a good man who was caught in a very bad situation. Like the so-called situation at Baylor happened to Bryles as if Bryles wasn't a central part of why it happened. It was just, it was really hard to watch, but yeah, I don't know. I, there's a part of me that thinks at some point in time, he'll show up somewhere on the professional level. 
It's hard not to believe that that'll happen eventually. Julie? Yeah, it, you know, Jessica, I agree with you completely. And I tweeted this week that I'm so sick and tired of having to explain why this shit matters to people. You know, it's it's just like the stuff at Penn State with, you know, it's with, it's with Joe Paterno. It's you're responsible for all the winning. You get all the kudos when everything goes right. But when something goes wrong, it was everyone else and the head coach had no idea. And it, Yes, exactly. Yes. It is... It is just so maddening. And I, I sat on this Twitter rant that, I, you know, it just boggles my mind the way that men treat rape differently from everything else. It's like not as serious, doesn't matter as much. You know, I don't know what to say other than it's just absolutely maddening. But this idea that, you know, a man who is in charge of everything, who gets all the kudos and all the money just, you know, we had the snow, had the wool completely pulled over his eyes for this kind of thing because he just couldn't possibly know what was happening. When we've seen the texts and we've seen everything that happened at Baylor behind the scenes, it's been documented very, you know, carefully. And my head just absolutely exploded. And then there was this additional stuff about the same team wanting to sign Johnny Manziel, who, of course, washed out of the NFL and has been, you know, accused of domestic violence. So the whole thing just makes me mad. Yeah. Mad is the word I keep coming back to, just mad and frustrated. I always want to make sure that we, I feel like lots of times, and I do this too, we just say like the Baylor scandal or what happened at Baylor. I just want to be specific. So a little trigger warning, I'm not going to get too specific. But between 2011 and 2014, there were at least 52 alleged acts of rape, including five gang rapes by at least 31 different football players at Baylor, according to reports. Two of those gang rapes allegedly involved 10 or more players. Some were recorded. A former Title IX investigator at Baylor said the football program was responsible for nearly one-third of the sexual assault cases that were reported to her office, despite the fact that the football program made up less than 1% of Baylor's student population. Okay. Just always feel like that's important to get in the context of like what is actually going on. And one more thing, it also came out, not only did they work out Johnny Manziel this week and are apparently still interested in bringing him in at some point, that that's not completely closed, but it also came out that Eric Tillman, who has been with the team since 2013 and was promoted to general manager in March of 2016, actually pled guilty to sexually assaulting a teenage babysitter in 2010. So I don't know what you guys are doing up there, Hamilton, but it's not great. Jess? Yeah, and I wanted to mention one more thing. It came out after Bryles didn't get the job with the CFL that he had gotten a letter in May of this year from Baylor that he was then allowed to like give out as kind of his recommendation letter from the university that basically said he didn't do anything wrong. And it was signed by their general counsel. And I... One of the things that has been really frustrating about the last two years, it's been about two years since we all found out about all of the beginning of all of this, I don't know what Baylor's doing a lot of the time. And they they are so confusing. I mean, they fired him with, you know, they suspended him with the intent to fire, eventually settling with him. They were adamant about their decision to part ways with this man. Earlier this year, Julie just mentioned it. There were text messages that came out in a legal filing that was brought by a former athletic staffer who since dropped his suit. I mean, these were damning text messages that Bryles and others on staff sent about protecting players from accountability in regards to all kinds of incidents. I mean, there have just been lawsuit after lawsuit, survivor after survivor coming forward. And then there's this letter. And I can't for the life of me figure out what Baylor gained from writing that letter, why they made the choice to do that. And I just think that this is such a frustrating part because they never released the the full investigation document that the law firm Pepper Hamilton did, the internal investigation. So we don't have any of those details still two years later. It's just hard to wrap your mind around what's going on in Waco and what went on in Hamilton. Yeah, Brenda? Well, I think the confusing part is also it's somewhat intentional in the sense that there's a message that they're sending to alumni and to donors and people who they think are wink, wink, still going to tolerate this culture of rape on campus because it's it's tradition and it's college football and, and this is important to that community. And yet they're going to appease 
people who recognize the victims in this situation. So I, I feel like the confusion is actually they're not confused about what they want to do. They want to appease a certain section of donors and alumni that they think are attached to the football program. This is just me saying in general, right? I, I don't I don't know everything about this case, but I feel like it's very common. We're seeing it again and again in college programs. And they're sort of wink, wink, we'll take care of this. But we also are sort of with these players and we want to continue to have your donations. And we still all secretly support this. I, I just, that's my feeling. I don't have evidence for that, but it just happens again and again. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I do want to say that yesterday Baylor played their home opener. They have their new coach, Matt Rule, who's actually, to his credit, said the right things around sexual violence. But they lost to Liberty, who is not even a, I don't think they're a D1 school, they're an FCS. And, you know, the sort of bow, tie the bow together here, Liberty actually hired the athletic director who was, he was actually just put on probation, but then chose to leave almost immediately after everything happened in spring of 2016. And, you know, he's part of those damning text messages and that legal filing. And he's now their new athletic director at Liberty. And he beat his football team, beat Baylor yesterday at home. You really can't make this stuff up. <laughs> like, you just, oh. like, it's too, it's too much. Oh. Just a couple more notes I think are important to stress here. When this news first came out to me, it was like, oh, the old boys network strikes again. One of the things was the coach of the Tiger Cats, it came out in the both, I, think, I believe both the press release and the statement from the CEO that they went back decades, they had been known, you know, known each other and been coaching for years. So it's one of those things where, once again, you just want to give your friend another shot, another chance, even though he showed no contrition and done no work towards like, actually redeeming his reputation. And then you also have, I, I thought to really just like, take things to the next level that the day they announced the Tiger Cats announced that, that Bryles was hired and then later fired. It was the day of the annual football clinic for women <laughs> at the at Hamilton. It was called Huddles and Heels. And once again, I like to say you don't need to pander to us just maybe don't hire people convicted of violence against women or who have enabled violence against women. And maybe that will help you reach out to more women. So moving on to something I think a little happier, the U.S. Open. You know, we've got some big tennis fans here on the Burn It All Down podcast, including myself. It's been quite a week at Flushing Meadows. It's been an unexpected tournament for both the men and the women. The men's draw has been decimated with injury. The bottom half of the draw, we don't know what's going to happen, except that there's going to be a finalist that nobody could have ever predicted. <laughs> in the top half of the men's draw, we still have Nadal and Federer on track to meet in the semifinals. Though I should note we're recording this on Sunday morning. By the time you listen to this, who knows? In the women's draw, we've got some champions like Venus Williams, Garbin Muguruza, Petra Kvitova, and number one, Karolina Pliskova, all hanging around. And then you have a wild card who's made quite a splash here at the U.S. Open, a wild card called Maria Sharapova, who upset, I believe, the number two seed, Simona Halep, in the first round, in what was, I believe, one of the best first rounds I've ever seen in Grand Slam history. It was really phenomenal. But there's been some controversy about Sharapova. A quick recap, the last major she played was the 2016 Australian Open. A drug test that she had at that tournament revealed that she had meldonium in her system, which was a drug that had just been banned at the start of 2016. So she was initially suspended for two years, and then she appealed that and had it reduced to 15 months. She came back on tour in April, I believe, but she hasn't played a whole lot because she's been, been plagued with injuries. But there has been a lot of controversy surrounding whether or not Sharapova should be granted wild cards. She was not given a, friend, a wild card into the other majors this year, but the U.S. Open did give her one. And so far, she's played all of her matches on Arthur Ashe Stadium, which is the biggest tennis stadium. Coco Vandaway, an American tennis player, has said that the USTA should have given the wild card to an American 
And Caroline Wozniacki, former number one, said in press after her loss to Ekaterina Makarova in the second round, quote, I think putting out a schedule where the number five in the world is playing on court five, fifth match after 11 p.m., I think that is unacceptable. When you look at center court, I understand completely the business side of things, but someone who comes back from a drug sentence and, you know, performance enhancing drugs, and then all of a sudden gets to play every single match on center court, I think that is a questionable thing to do. (sighs) Okay, all that context. Jess, I know you've been following the story closely. What do you think? Yeah, I've been following it closely because I've been watching tennis. It's been <laughs> so much fun. Like, I think the U.S. Open has been great this year. You know, one of my favorite things about this is that ESPN's response, which they're showing the entire Grand Slam, their response to especially Wozniacki's comments, but also Vanderway's, was to, like, have a little sit-down where there's, like, four of them talking to each other for 10 minutes about why their media decisions are the right ones which I just find so funny. It's like, you guys are controlling this, and then you're having a conversation about why you're right. You know, I find all the righteousness around doping exhausting in general. Almost all of it is so arbitrary, and the definition of doping is so narrow. Like, why one drug and not another? Why is this type of performance enhancement bad when simply having, you know, way more money than almost anyone else on tour and being able to pay for a team of people to keep your body in a particular shape is good? I mean, I just I don't get any of that. But I do get that there are rules, and since these are the rules, people got to follow them, because if you don't, like, what is sport? You know, sport is just made up after all, and Sharapova did break the rules. She got caught, and in her return to the Grand Slam stage, has been heralded. I mean, like, they love her, as if her going away wasn't of her own making, which I think is a big part of this. And so I can see why other players are bothered. Like, I'd be pissed, too. I mean, Wozniacki had just lost. So she was, you know, I think Mary Jo Fernandez said on ESPN the other day, she was probably not in a good mood when she made her statements. But I don't think she's wrong, necessarily. But I also do understand why the media is putting her on ash. It has been a joy to watch her play tennis, if I'm being honest. And that Halep match was so good. That was just so much fun to watch. So I don't really know what to make of all of this, but I... I mean, I get why everyone feels the way they do in this situation and why the choices have been made, but I don't really know what to do beyond that. Yeah, I think that's pretty much where I am. I mean, in my opinion, you know, she got punished. She spent 15 months off the tour, and that is a long time in what is pretty much the prime of her career towards the towards the end of her career. Of course, you never know how long the players are going to play these days. But I really do feel like, you know, it's that she she's done her time and she's earned her reputation. I mean, it's not I know that Sharapova gets a lot of attention because she is a very pretty white woman. And I understand that that is she probably gets a disproportionate amount of attention because of that. But she's also a five time major champion and she's one of the best players in the game. And so she's earned the right to you know, have a little bit of special treatment. She's earned that right, in my opinion. Julie? I have opinions on Maria Sharapova that I just, I don't really feel the need to go into, but I just wanted to point out that there was a great piece on Deadspin by Caitlin Thompson, who plays, I guess she used to be a pretty serious tennis player, and now she plays sort of in a rec league, but she did a piece called I Dope Like Maria Sharapova, and it was actually pretty great. And so she took Meldonium for her like rec tennis league, and then talked about how she felt afterwards and what effect it had on her. And it was actually pretty funny. And I think her conclusion was that, you know, taking meldonium she was never sore at any point and she recovered really quickly and stuff like that so she kind of came to the conclusion that everybody playing sports should take meldonium it was pretty it's pretty funny (laughs) and definitely worth a read yeah i mean i think there's also a lot of cultural things here right like meldonium is a drug that's it's an over-the-counter drug in russia in a lot of places in eastern europe you know what i mean it's not that big of a deal and i think what happened is a lot of it seemed like a lot of Russian athletes were taking it, which is why it ended up on the banned list, because there was, you know, some sort of study. But the rollout of this Meldonian ban was very, very poor. And I mean, look, Sharapova was negligent. She did not check the list. I I do not believe that if she had checked the list and realized that it had been banned, that she would have still been taking it because it's not like she was really trying to hide it. Like it was just in her system at this major tournament. Do you know what I mean? It's not like they caught her, you know, on one of the off season like days or something like that. 
But, you know, but she was incredibly, incredibly negligent, which is really frustrating. But look, I understand also, I mean, I would kind of love to hear your thoughts on Sharapova, Julie. <laughs> but I, I love her because she is just like, like, she's not that nice. I mean, yeah. she's ridiculous. So, I, mean, I mean, one of my favorite things is like, like, just, I'll send it to you in a minute, Julie. But like, her quote after the people told her the Wozniacki comment, it was, all that matters to me is I'm in the fourth round. Yeah, I'm not sure where she is. Oh, shit. <laughs> I just love that. She's a villain. Yeah, she, yeah, she is kind of like the ice queen Russian villain. I have issues with her for political reasons. Before the Sochi Olympics, she did this, you know, thing about Sochi where she walked around and talked about going there with her family and what a great place it was and how great Russia is and everything, you know, and it was just very privileged and very, very like I'm part of the in crowd in Russia. So everything is great for me, even though it might suck for like tons of other people, you know, so my issues with her really have nothing to do with tennis. That was sort of my point. Gotcha. Totally. I totally understand. Look, there's a lot of other tennis talk we could have. I know Brenda, our Latin American expert here, wanted to talk a little bit about these struggles over in the Latin American tennis community. Bren? Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I was thinking to myself during this Open, wow, there's really no Latino or Latin American players. I mean, because Garbina is really coming out of the Spanish system, right? And I was thinking to myself, it, there's this really long history since I'm thinking back Maria Esther Bueno, who was a Brazilian partnering with Althea Gibson in the 60s to Gabriela Sabatini, or even you just mentioned Mary Jo Fernandez, who's Latina, you know, Dominican. So even in the Latino community, in Latin American community, I, I feel like women's tennis has sort of taken a nosedive in recent years. And there's been a spate of articles blaming their lack of discipline, which is that typical thing you're going to do is make these huge cultural assumptions. But I was just really interested in not seeing it. And, and I don't have any answers, but it just sort of feels empty right now in, the, in, in that department. So I'm, I'm going to do a little bit more poking around. Yeah, this might be a dumb question. I apologize. But do we consider is Puerto Rico considered part of Latin America? Yeah, Latin Americans aren't going to give that up. I think okay. I think, yeah. I think in US... totally fair. I just wanted to make sure. But you did have, of course, Monica Puig winning the gold medal last year. True, in true. That's tennis, true. Which was super exciting. And she's struggled a lot since then. I think like that that was an, kind of an outlier result for her. That was her playing above her uh, her normal route but we'll see her again she'll she'll have some some good moments again she's still very young but and, I, but agreed yes overall it's not a booming industry right now and yeah i'm just curious there's there's like at least three argentinian men still in this i think if i'm mm -hmm. counting correctly so on del the men's side, yeah del <laughs> but yeah schwartzman and then oh i guess meyer was yesterday and he lost but i mean they they did a pretty good run so that's interesting that there's a discrepancy here yeah, especially in Mexico, I just sort of see a, a complete lack of the Mexican women's game compared to like the 80s and 90s, where you felt like there were all these young people coming up and, and a lot of them really excited about tennis. And they still are, but I just, I think there's something going on with the federations. Yeah. Isn't there always something going on with the federations? <laughs> Everywhere <laughs> in awesome. all sports. <laughs> Moving on to, I think, one of the most exciting moments so far in Burn It All Down history. Jess, please tell us about your interview this week. Yeah, this week I talked with ESPN Sports Center host Jamel Hill. We chatted about being political and public right now. You should follow her on Twitter, everybody. The point of sports in a moment like this and how she feels about being a Michigan State fan this year in the midst of two major sexual violence scandals, the one involving gymnastics physician Larry Nasser, who has reportedly abused dozens of women across multiple decades. And she actually had some really interesting stuff to say about that. And the other involving four now former football players who've been charged in two different sexual assault cases. We, we commiserated because I'm an FSU alumni, Florida State alumni, and sort of how we deal with all of this as fans. She's awesome, and it was an honor to talk with her. Welcome, Jamel Hill, to Burn It All Down. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So you recently participated in a roundtable for Sports Illustrated about being publicly political in this moment. And in that, you said, quote, 
When you're under the leadership of a president that refuses to condemn Nazis and racism, how am I supposed to function the rest of the day and pretend as if I give a shit about Blake Bortles losing his job? So, Jamel, how do you do it? How do you give a shit? I have to say, like, some days it's a struggle, and it doesn't just apply to the presidential leadership. When you look at what happened in Houston and these events that go on, and when you're in sports, everybody's like, oh, but sports is an escape. And I'm just astounded by that concept because, yeah, sports is what I do for a living, but I'm also a citizen of this world and in this country. And there are days there it's really hard to focus on sports. Last summer was another perfect example between what happened in, in Dallas and Orlando Castile, like it was tough. Like there were days where Mike and I came into work where it just felt like either we were in some alternate universe or we shouldn't be there. It just, it was just really hard. So maybe I'm envious of the people who can say like stick to sports or sports is my escape. I'm just like, I just am not really built that way. So yeah, I mean, I, I try my hardest to obviously focus on the job and the task at hand, but it's just not always very easy, especially given our current climate. In a moment like this, something I think a lot about at this point, like what is the role of sports? For me, I've been watching the US Open this week. Tennis is my favorite sport to watch and it does feel like escapism. And then at the same time, I get on social media and I am inspired by what Kaepernick and other football players are doing. And what do you think is the role that sports can or should play in moments like this and maybe culture at large? I just talked about what's happening in Houston is that I've been extremely inspired by what a lot of professional athletes have done in terms of deciding among themselves and not like they have some kind of secret meeting that they were going to, you know, really lead the way in terms of donations and getting the word out and even seeing some of the, the videos that don't necessarily make mainstream media, like Gerald Green, for him to be driving around in a truck and looking for boats. I'm inspired by that. I'm inspired by the fact that they feel this need and obligation to be active. And you take that, as you said, Colin Kaepernick, what he's done, what he's sacrificed, it's, it's hard not to be moved by that. And Michael Bennett, what Michael Bennett has done, I mean, the, the fact that he has kind of taken the baton from Colin Kaepernick and decided that he was going to be a voice. And the fact that he's writing a book and doing all these different things, like I'm, I am, I am constantly in awe of their movement because for, I think we went through a dead period in sports where athletes weren't encouraged or didn't feel obligated or didn't feel like they needed to do that. And now it feels like there's a different wave and a different momentum among them where they really feel like we need to be more than just people that entertain you. I wanted to ask you about being a fan. I think you know, and most people that know me know that I'm a Florida State alum, and I have had a rough go with my relationship to the school over the last five years and the athletic department and making sense of the choices that they've made, right? You're pretty famous for your fandom of Michigan State. And so Michigan State, back in the spring, there were two big simultaneous sort of scandals, abuse scandals that came out, right? One is still ongoing in the courts with Larry Nasser. He was the sports physician who has reportedly abused dozens of women over multiple decades. He worked for Michigan State. Some of these women have said they reported to the university and nothing happened. And then simultaneously to this, there were four different football players at Michigan State who were involved in two different sexual assault cases, three players in one, one in the other. All of them have been dismissed. There was an athletic department staff or football staffer who got involved in the middle of the one with the three guys and the police said that he interfered. I mean, it was just like, we're just rolling it out. And I just saw that there's an article going into the season, you know, sort of like, where are we now with, with sexual assault and football at Michigan State? It's so much. What advice do you have? I get the, I get asked this a lot. Like, what advice do you have for people who, I mean, have, it's their school that have, that's in the spotlight or their team, right? We see this on the professional level too. Like, how have you as a fan made sense? And what are you thinking going into this season for Michigan State? I think despite whatever fandom I have and obvious sentiment I have for my university, it, I still believe strongly, like, they need to be held accountable like I would look at any university. You mentioned both of the scandals. Larry Nassar was a little different because I felt like as a university, as a school, that was 
very disappointing. And disappointing doesn't even do it justice with how we handled that. And what made that even tougher for me is the gymnastics coach, Kathy Clegas. I know her very well. Over the beat, me, Kathy, and another friend, like we we were friendly. We socialized together a lot. And I was stunned, wasn't even the word to describe it, but her level of being tone deaf. And I haven't spoken, I haven't spoken to her since, not not because it was on purpose, but like I was still trying to process the fact that somebody that I socialized with on a regular basis could undermine and turn her back on women who were constantly telling her that this was happening. That was much tougher to process than what happened on the football team. Only because like, and we, we don't deserve a cookie for this or a pat on the back, at, at least for, with the football team, it was handled and dealt with in a way that made me have confidence that there was not something Baylor-esque happening there. Once they discovered that the Stafford, as you mentioned, the assistant had been involved, had interfered, he was dismissed. My one dissatisfaction with that is that one of the players involved was somebody who already coming to the university had a history of sexual assault. Yes, sure, you can go with the whole second chance vibe, but the second chance doesn't have to be you, okay? And I just felt like it was just completely unnecessary for him to even be at the university. And lo and behold, he did what was in his past and what, you know, was in some way very predictive. So from that standpoint, I was very disappointed that Mark D'Antonio even had somebody like that on the football team. Does it diminish what this season is? For me, no, because, look, I'd rather us go 0-12 with nobody on the team that is sexually assaulting women. I'm fine with that. As long as I feel good about the players that are on the team, about the direction of the leadership, I'm completely okay with losing. Even though this season, from a purely football perspective, is going to probably be not so good because those players were significant starters for us that were dismissed. I'm fine with that because I don't want to look out there on the field and feel some kind of angst or feel dirty about rooting for my own team, knowing that there's a player on the team that I feel like has abused a woman. I can suffer through this season, but yeah, I mean, I I hope our entire administration, they realize the gravity of this. And for people out there everywhere, like everybody, it was fine for a lot of people to point at Baylor and have this self-righteousness about what happened there, like Michigan State, much like what Florida State went through, it will happen at your university. It does happen at your university. It just, you know, maybe it hasn't reached a point where it's become some kind of public scandal, but this happens everywhere. This is not unique to certain universities. There's a big Florida State football game coming up this weekend. By the time this airs, it will have played out. And my husband and I have already had the discussion of like, are we going to watch it? And we are. Did you take a time out from Florida State football for a while or you continue to watch? So I used to be diehard where I would have this season memorized. Like I knew when we were playing Miami, we wouldn't like nothing scheduled that weekend because we need to watch the game kind of stuff. And I it was more like I would watch it if I had the TV on and it was on, but I couldn't. I just couldn't. I And I still struggle with it because... So much of what we found out about Florida State was systemic within the athletic department. And a lot of those people are still there. And that's the kind of thing I think about. I have that angst, Jamel, when, I, when I'm watching. I just think it's sort of you make do of what you can. Every kind of pop culture is problematic, right? There are certainly movies. There are certain music that we listen to. Now, it's, it's definitely some people that I can't listen to or go see because it just is so problematic, you know? Like somebody like R. Kelly comes to mind. Like, I can't. I can't with R. Kelly, which is almost, it's just really interesting just because he was such a, such a big part of when I grew up. Like, everybody was listening to R. Kelly. I can't stand the sound of his voice now. So, but yeah, you're right. In, in pop culture, we all make these choices and we make these deals with ourselves. And there is a part of me that's just like, okay, well, why does one kind of, I'm constantly evaluating, like, why does one strike you one way and another one doesn't? So I just implore all my favorite actors and musicians, please, God, don't do anything. But I will quit you. I don't want to, but I will. Yeah, I think that too. Whenever I like someone on, I'm like, come on, Kevin Durant, like, come on. (laughs) You got to come through. 
thank you so much for being on Jamel. I just really appreciate you all the time. And I love watching you on sports center every day. You always look so good. I know that's not the most important thing, but <laughs> I, I try. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Well, thank you. All right, fellow flamethrowers, which I would like to announce officially is the name we've decided to call our listeners. <laughs> it's time for the burn pile. Brenda, will you start us off? Sure, I'd love to, but it's not a happy story. It's a it's a flaming story. The New York Times ran a story this week that broke my heart about a doctoral student named Christina Suggs at Florida State. She was running some courses in hospitality while getting her PhD. And the article mentioned her as a single mom. But Suggs made the mistake of actually trying to teach, asking the same things from all the students, including the football players. And when she reported the pressure she was getting from her supervisor and players to inflate their grades, the administration of Florida State did nothing to support her. In fact, very quickly, she found herself out of a job and out of the program. The New York Times actually published some of the students' plagiarized work. And it's like it's this cut and paste job from Wikipedia that if if you've ever been in a college setting where you're teaching or, or, or privy to this, is a classic device, right? Suggs ended up without the PhD, but with lots of debt and stress. And shortly thereafter, in 2014, she died from an accidental overdose of prescription medications for pain, anxiety, and depression. So I just want to burn, 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 burn the FSU administration, and the whole practice of asking teachers to bow down to college athletics. Burn. That is burn. That's awful. Burn it. It's oh, my it's God. Just, it's, I, I, it's, it's killing me this week. I just I can't get it out of my head. So thank you for that cathartic burn. Jeez. Oh, All right, Jess, you want to take it from there? <laughs> yeah, sure. I do want to just say, going off of what Brenda, there's a new book, Mike McIntyre, who wrote that article. That's actually from a book that's coming out this week. And as an FSU alum, I have already ordered it and I will be reading it and probably crying through it. Earlier this week, Sports Illustrated cites Monday morning quarterbacks Albert Breer published quotes from three NFL executives and one coach all anonymously on their thoughts on why Colin Kaepernick, the kneeling quarterback, has not yet gotten a job all without ever explaining why they are anonymously, anonymously sourced. They aren't even interviews. They're just quotes. There's no pushback from Breer or even a conversation to contextualize these four anonymous sources' thoughts. They are published as standalones, and Breer called them, quote, facts in a tweet. Then, right on the heels of this, Sporting News' Christian Dyer published an anonymous NFL general manager's thoughts on Kaepernick, again, without ever explaining why this person is granted anonymity. Whenever you hear or read a media report where sources are anonymous, you must ask yourself what this person did to deserve anonymity. Is their job or their safety in danger if they speak out? Is something gained from their words that would be lost without them something otherwise unknowable? Does the media outlet explain to you why they chose to grant anonymity to this person? Because let me tell you, in my reporting on much more sensitive topics, any potential use of anonymity is a major editorial discussion that is not entered into lightly. This is lazy and, to be frank, cowardly reporting. I want to burn this kind of useless anonymous sourcing. Burn. Wow, burn it, yeah. Burn it. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that really quickly that like anonymous sourcing should be used to protect the vulnerable, not the powerful, you know? This is that's the exact opposite of what, what Breer is doing. I would like to burn, staying on the NFL beat, just this entire Ezekiel Elliott domestic violence appeal and case and public battle. I know we've talked about it on and on and on again on this program. And look, we're going to have to keep talking about it because this thing is shaping up to be one of the ugliest court battles between the NFL and the NFLPA that we've seen. This is not going to go away. The NFLPA has appealed the suspension. We're supposed to know, I believe, Tuesday, the answer to that, whether or not it will be reduced or what's going to happen, if it'll stick at six games. They're also asking to have everything just nullified is just another thing that union is saying that the NFL had a league orchestrated conspiracy against Ezekiel Elliott. 
All of the court documents have been released. We now have the full NFL investigation that they've given us. There's transcripts of the hearings. I've been combing through it all this weekend. And it's really horrible when you're reading about people fighting over things that involve a woman allegations of being beaten and also intimate details about her life, such as a miscarriage and an abortion. And you also have Ezekiel Elliott. A lot of his past is coming out, his drug use, his just entire lifestyle. It's really ugly all around. It's really ugly to see two huge organizations using these people's personal lives as these maneuvering game, like chess pieces (laughs) in this ongoing battle. It's like I said, it's not going to go away, unfortunately. We're going to have to keep talking about it, and we're going to have to keep thinking of victims everywhere and making sure that we're centering the right people in these conversations. But for now, I just want to burn it all. Burn. 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 Julie. Finish us up. All right. This week, a SB Nation site manager named Cheryl Bradley filed a lawsuit against SB Nation. She's the manager of the Colorado Avalanche site called Mile High Hockey, who I'm pretty sure has blocked me on Twitter, but that's neither here nor there. She <laughs> she said that she worked 30 to 40 hours a week for SB Nation and was paid $125 a month as a stipend. She's suing them, claiming that she and other site managers that work nearly 40 hours a week are employees and therefore subject to wage and hour protections, minimum wage, benefits, stuff like that. Obviously, SB Nation is far from the only site that's getting content by paying writers basically paltry, paltry sums of money. I am really hopeful that if this case goes forward, that it will force a lot of sites to start paying a decent living wage for people who produce their content. I have my doubts. I think it's probably much more likely to throw the industry even further into chaos and see more sites, you know, just kind of dispense with everyone and pivot to video kind of thing. But potentially, if everyone were going to do the right thing, it sort of has the the potential to make sites like SB Nation and Fansided and a whole bunch of other places have to actually pay people money that they could live on when they spend, you know, 40 hours a week producing content for their site. So, You know, my co-host here in Chicago, Maggie Hendricks, made a great point yesterday that being a journalist used to be a really solid, middle-class, good job. And now it has become something where you're constantly scrambling and scrabbling to try to get paid from people. And I would really, really like to see it return to that. So while I have my doubts about whether or not it actually will, I'm grateful to see this lawsuit and I want to burn... Not necessarily the sites themselves, but this culture that is created, free content and content at really low prices for all the websites out there. So burn it. Burn. Burn. All right. It is now time for our Badass Woman of the Week Award. Like to start out with a few honorable mentions. First, we have Sue Bird of the Seattle Storm, who this week became the all-time WNBA assist leader in a game where she actually got 13 assists in one game, and that was incredible. What a way to make a record. We also have Jonquel Jones, a sophomore for the Connecticut Sun in her second year, who is about to have the best rebounding season in WNBA history, if she can just get six rebounds tonight in her game. And you also have Serena Williams, who gave birth to her baby girl. So congratulations, Serena. Yay. But the winner is... Tina Charles, a WNBA player, but I don't want to talk about her on-court work. Tina Charles literally saved a life this summer. Charles's late aunt, Maureen Hopi Vaz, suffered multiple organ failure in 2013. What would have saved Charles's aunt was an automated external defibrillator, which is an AED. So at that time, Charles started the Hopi's Heart Foundation to honor her aunt and raise awareness of the need for AEDs. So starting in 2013 to today, she has donated her entire WNBA salary to her foundation and has placed 300 AEDs all around the country. 
One of these AEDs happened to be in Austin, Texas, where a man named Dan Carlson went into cardiac arrest in July. And because this AED was was around and the people around him had been educated on how to use it, his life was saved. He would have literally died if Tina Charles had not had this AED placed in the place where he worked. Uh, Yahoo Sports did a fantastic story on this. And actually, Tina Charles got to meet Dan Carlson this week. And it was really emotional to watch. And I think this is only the beginning for really great things from her foundation. So I don't know how you top that. Thank oh, you, Tina, lovely. for all that you do. Oh, that's lovely. amazing. <laughs> no, isn't that it's, it's really, really cool. <laughs> makes me feel so much better. I know. I know. It's it's just like like it's a very tangible thing. Like literally a life was saved because of the work she's done, you know? I just really cool. We've got a little listener mail today. Julie? We do. We love hearing from our listeners. And this one comes to us from Erica, who says, longtime listener, first time emailer. And she says, I wanted to share some thoughts about the latest episode. So this is, I believe, two episodes ago. In the conversation about Ezekiel Elliott's appeal, the comment was made that I found off-putting in relation to domestic violence. I wish different language could have been used to convey the frustration a client may cause an attorney trying to DV case. While I honor the attempt to be real, any implication about re-victimizing a survivor of domestic violence I find worrisome. In that moment, the language used did not feel in step with the purpose of the podcast. I share this feedback with love and perhaps a different perspective that may be valuable. So I will fall on my sword here. I'm the one who, in our conversation about Ezekiel Elliott, was talking about less than perfect victims. And I said that there were times when I said that I was going to beat a victim myself because they were so frustrating. And it was an attempt to sort of be honest and be real and be a little self-deprecating at the same time. And it didn't come off that way. So obviously, Erica is exactly right. She and I had a conversation offline about this. And uh, I appreciate her bringing that to my attention. It was kind of one of those things that the minute it came out of my mouth, I wanted it back. So I appreciate her calling me out on that and forcing me to sort of confront the things that come out of my mouth when I'm being flipped. Absolutely. Always call us out, friends. We are here to learn and to get better and to figure all this out together. So we love our listeners so much. Let's end on a positive note. What are you guys looking forward to this week? Brenda? I'm looking forward to the qualifiers in the South American Comebol for the 2018 World Cup. It's crazy. Few of the best teams of the, you know, in the world are within one point of each other. Argentina, Chile, Colombia, and Uruguay are all within two points. Brazil qualified like months ago because Brazil. This <laughs> Thursday though, yeah, right. This Thursday though, they all play, you know, what I call spoiler games. They play against a team not going to qualify or have already qualified. So Chile, Bolivia, Colombia, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, and Argentina versus Venezuela. So everyone's playing someone who isn't in contention, which makes it even wilder. Ah, the games overlap. So look for me to barely survive on Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) Jess? Sure. So I recently read Houston-based reporter Michael Hurd's new book, Thursday Night Lights. It's about the history of black high school football players and coaches in Texas, specifically during segregation. My review of it is going to be published sometime soon at the Texas Observer, but and, and I do, I recommend it. It's important history that is barely ever told, despite the significant level of coaching and playing talent that came out of black high schools in Texas for many decades. And so it's interesting because I just read this book, and what's what I'm looking forward to this week and what's been good in my life, I'm re-watching Friday Night Lights because two of my friends at Texas Monthly are participating in a roundtable for the next month where they write about watching the show now in 2017. One of them has never seen it and one is watching it for who knows how, you know, what time this, what repeated viewing this is. It is weird to watch Friday Night Lights, you know, a decade after the show first aired. And when I first saw it, I've never seen it again. My relationship to football is so different now, but I love it so much. And so comparing Friday Night Lights and thinking about Thursday Night Lights, it's it's a it's fun. I love that show. It's my favorite show. And I can't wait to read that review. All right, Julie. 
Mine is more of a what's good than what I'm looking forward to. I finally saw Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals, which was the darling of the Oscars in a lot of ways. It is one of the most thought-provoking layered psychological thrillers I've ever seen. And it was one of those movies that you watch it, it kind of ends, you're not sure how you feel about it. And then a week, two weeks later, you're still thinking about it and trying to unpack it. So it really sort of inspired me to listen to this podcast with Tom Ford talking about how he put the layers of the movie together because he's dealing with three different time frames plus a book that's being read and they're showing you what's happening in the book at the same time. It's one of those things that sort of inspires you to get creative, or at least me, to get creative again and to sit down and to try to write, you know, one of those or finish one of those novels I've got kicking around that I've had for 10 years. So I think if, if you haven't seen Nocturnal Animals, I, I highly, highly recommend it. The first half is extremely intense, but it's very much a thinking person's mystery movie. And I really, really enjoyed it. I want to read your novel, Julie. Yeah, it's like 400 pages <laughs> with no end in sight. All right. I can't Those wait. are my favorite types of novels, so perfect. <laughs> Opus. I am looking forward to, I'm sure you can guess it, the WNBA playoffs, which start this week. The first two rounds of the WNBA playoffs are single elimination games, which is the most stressful and cruel thing you could do to a WNBA fan and probably, I guess, the players too. But anyways, they did this so that the semifinals and the final can be longer, which I do appreciate. But please, friends, tune in to the WNBA playoffs and we will have much more WNBA playoffs talk in the future going forward. I think that's it, everybody. Our podcast lives on SoundCloud. We can also be heard on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We love reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate and tell us, you know, what you're thinking. This week, instead of our GoFundMe, we'd really love you to donate to a GoFundMe that is going directly to Relief in Houston for the flood victims there. There's a lot of organizations. I'm going to shout out the work that Zena Garrison, who is a former tennis champion who really paved the way for a lot of African-American tennis players between Althea Gibson and Serena and Venus Williams. She's was a two-time U.S. Open semifinalist and a Wimbledon finalist. So she is from Houston. She has a tennis foundation there where she works with a lot of local kids. She does a lot of just fantastic work. If you go to her website, xenagarrison.org, she's trying to raise $1 million to help the Houston kids in need. She wants to make sure not only can she provide direct assistance, but she also wants to provide tennis lessons and opportunities for these these kids to get back to sport and get back to fun daily things, which I think is so important in these times. So we're going to have that link in our show notes, and we will also tweet it out, as well as a list of other local organizations in and around the Houston area that I think are worth your time and money if you're feeling the need to donate. And if we have any listeners in Houston or surrounding areas, we are definitely thinking about you. You know, we hope you'll continue to follow us on Twitter. We're at, at Burn It Down Pod. And on Facebook, we're at Burn It All Down. Our website is burnitalldown.com. And you can go to our website to find show notes. And thanks to your amazing donations and help, we do have transcripts right now. They're usually up a day or two after the episode comes out. We'll always tweet when they're live. So thank you all so much for making that possible. And email us once again. We love listener mail. Burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. For Brenda Elsie, Julie DeCaro, Jessica Luther, I'm Lindsay Gibbs. Thank you guys so much. Hey!